Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor in exile, and I'm joined once again by Kevin, I am not at liberty to answer that, Senator Hume. What's up, Kevin? Uh, I'm, I'm not at liberty to answer that, Senator. I do not, I do not recall, Congressman. <laughs> oh, no. I was in the car for an extended period of time on Tuesday, and um, so I got to hear a few hours of the Senate confirmation hearings for mm-hmm. Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett. Mm-hmm. And the English language, it's incredible. Um, mm-hmm. There are literally so many ways to politely say, yeah, I'm not going to fucking answer your question. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Without saying, like, I'm not touching that one with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, just like, I am not at liberty to discuss that. I I do not recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even know why they, you know, have these things sometimes. I plead the fifth. <clears throat> For grandstanding. Yeah. Kamala Harris's whole thing, like she, it was like the first 30 minutes were just, like just a stump speech. Yeah. And then got I'm not to, surprised. Like, yeah. I mean, that's what they do. Yeah. But that was Tuesday and now it's Friday. And in between uh, then and now, there were more days of hearings. Uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein gave Senator Lindsey Graham a maskless hug. Uh. <laughs> Donald Trump and Joe Biden uh, screamed into their respective uh, voids. Uh, well, one uh, screamed. One screamed, one uh, very calmly spoke. We'll let you guess which one that was if you didn't watch those. Um, and uh, and their, com- their competing town hall events. And, um, and that was just the national news. Doesn't even take into account uh, Mayor London Breed calling out the Board of Supervisors for their blind allegiance to, quote, the lefty movement, unquote. And Mackie, Makey, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, man. The lemur was possibly kidnapped or maybe just let out uh, of of his cage at the San Francisco Zoo. I know, like, oh. that's crazy. Like, that uh, SFPD alert that went out about that, like... <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. And, by the way, that's not even taken into account the two huge pieces of space junk that almost collided in low Earth orbit... Uh, which would have, you know, had potentially disastrous results. Like, I mean, have you seen the movie Gravity, Kevin? <laughs> I have. That is a terrifying yeah. movie. So, Ugh. yeah, it's on brand. It's on brand for 2020 for sure. <laughs> I know, um, right? The lemur's back uh, now, and those two objects, a defunct Soviet satellite and a piece of a Chinese rocket, did not hit each other, thank goodness. Um, but I, you know, we got to come up with some plan for all this space junk. My point is there is a lot going on this week and I don't even know what to crack wise about. Mm-hmm. I'm tempted to just leave it at that, you know, and, and get straight to our interview. Cause we got a good interview today. We got Roman Mars, the, oh, nice. the Roman Mars host of the hit podcast, 99% invisible. That man with the deepest, most resonant voice. I think I've ever laid my ears on. <laughs> Um, staff writer Benjamin Schneider interviewed him about his new book, 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. Nice. But you know me, Kevin, I mean, as much as I love Roman Mars' dulcet tones, I might just love hearing my own voice more. So (laughs) let's get to riffing. Just slightly. (laughs) Um, I guess the thing that I will say about this Amy Coney Barrett hearing is that she sounds downright sane when compared to Brett. Have you ever blacked out Senator Kavanaugh? I know. God, that 
fucking disaster of a you know party boy is on has been sitting on there for what like two years now yeah, almost that, that was like, 2018 uh, well at least yeah so at least this time around we didn't have um the the highest uh the upper chamber pouring over um barrett's yearbook wondering about the meaning of words like a boof <laughs> or questioning her about her questionable nicknames for some of her college buddies remember squee oh squee <laughs> yes or you know at uh, least we didn't have a stanford research psychologist willing to testify in front of the senate and the entire american people that she was sexually assaulted by barrett so there's that yes and I mean, I'm not like trying to, you know, excuse this, you know, hack job of a thing that the Republicans no. are pushing no, through no, no. at all. But, you know, Gorsuch has in the past year, you know, gone on decisions that went not the way that Trump wanted, right. which was great. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, like it still doesn't excuse this just awful mess of a thing well, that they're trying the to hypocr- do blatantly in the front of the hypocrisy of ramming it through. So yeah, that reminds So that brings me to this next, this list quote that I have of, um, <clears throat> so Lindsey Graham, right. Um, I, I pulled this from an article. I don't know if he said this during the hearings or to a reporter or what, but he was, he was trying to defend the idea that this is full blown hypocrisy, um, which is hard because it's full blown hypocrisy. And, right. and he's like, he says, uh, quote, I'm not going to sit on the sidelines and watch one of our nominees be destroyed after showing respect for two democratic nominees. I guess he's talking about Kagan and Sotomayor that I think that is not right. And I'm not going to do that unquote, but first of all, respect. What about Merrick Garland? (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Stonewalled that guy for like months. He was nominated in March of 2016. Barrett. When was Barrett nominated? The end of last month, September little yeah. different exactly at a an event that's become a super spreader <laughs> yeah event. uh oh and by the way um also with respect to the way that the kavanaugh hearings went Lindsay, i don't seem to remember anybody accusing justice sotomayor or justice kagan of rape right so you know there's that and to your point about Feinstein, um, you know, she was criticized for being too cordial to Senator Graham. Uh, they even hugged each other. Like I said, uh, apparently Lindsey Graham has, uh, would ha- didn't get a COVID test, even though people wanted him to, because mm-hmm. partly just cause he was trying to rush this thing through. Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, he was at that event as far as I know. So uh, a lot of people are up in arms about that and progressives wish Feinstein had thrown everything she had at this nomination process to slow it down. Um, But instead she chose civility. I think that, you know, as a tactic, maybe it could work in our, in, in the favor of Democrats. Uh, I mean, I think think Democrats need to do everything they can right now to to seem just reasonable, to seem not like a crazy person. Cause that's like that. Just let Trump burn up because it's about winning over voters on the fence as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I guess, but it's also like, it's just letting the Republicans play ball at their own pace. Like it, it's, it's, they're just not even at bat. They're just, you know, trying to get a walk or something and they're getting struck out every time. Like, yeah, you know, they're not swinging for the fence. Fa- you know, they're not even holding the bat. <laughs> they're just, you know, letting 
they're just letting it happen. I'm the only thing that's keeping me sane right now, basically, is watching postseason baseball. <laughs> I can tell you've been watching some baseball. Um, the hug is frustrating to me on this level, though. It's like these politicians are helping to foment rage that is turning into real violence on the streets. People are really killing each other. And then like we see that, oh, it's just a job for them and their cordial collegial work pals. It's like, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I I do. I just, I don't know. Like I, I don't agree with the tactic of cordiality when they're not, when it's not warranted. Like, I mean, there's one thing for bipartisanship, but we've had like 10 years of non-bipartisanship. And like, you know, I get that the Democrats have this sort of mentality of trying to be the adult in the room. But like, what do you do when when basically the entire GOP is just running rampant? You know, people aren't being taken care of in this pandemic. And it's all because of people like Mitch McConnell and the president of not trying to work together. And, you know, like Democrats have to, at some point, try to use their tactics against them because it's just the only way that really, I think anything is going to get done at this point. And once we have maybe somebody different in the white house who can actually act like a leader, then we can change tactics and be more of the adult in the room and try to start getting away from the children that have just run rampant. Well, speaking of the idea of civility in this dumpster fire of a year, there is one more thing I want to touch upon before we get to our first and only segment again with Roman Mars. Um, (laughs) It's uh, this app, this gig economy app, which I was introduced to while editing a recent story by SF weekly contributor, Veronica Irwin, that story Organized Labor Fights Uber and Lyft's Prop 22 mentions this app called Civil, C-I-V-V-L, with a second V where the second I should be. And I think that that V stands for very fucking fucked up. It's a gig economy app that connects gig economy workers with jobs serving eviction notices and moving evicted people's property out of the properties they've just been evicted from. (laughs) Oh my God. Their website proudly proclaims that civil offers access to quote, the fastest growing money-making gig due to COVID-19 unquote. Jesus. Got to capitalize, right? I mean, this is what, this is what in stage capitalism looks like. This is what what Matt Tybee is talking about when he's talking about the vampire squid. This is like that app on season three of Westworld, the Rico app, except it's even worse my opinion ka-ching i'm like i'm speechless but hey at least that defunct soviet satellite didn't collide with that chinese rocket oh god Mm. this is the darkest timeline no matter what (laughs) coming up on the podcast we have ben schneider in conversation with roman mars and kurt kolstedt of the 99 percent invisible podcast stay tuned we'll be right back
Hi, everyone. This is Ben Schneider, staff writer at SF Weekly. This is my first time hosting a segment on the SF Weekly podcast. And as fate would have it, I'm joined by two of the biggest legends in the world of podcasting, Roman Mars and Kurt Kolstedt, host and producer, respectively, of the hit design podcast, 99% Invisible. Over more than 400 episodes, Roman and Kurt have uncovered the fascinating histories behind the things we take for granted in the modern world. Credit cards, sports bras, ice, lawns, space trash, and so much more. Roman and Kurt are the authors of a brand new book based on their podcast called The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. The book takes a magnifying glass to the urban landscape, telling the story of, among other things, telephone poles, freeway medians, architectural preservation, and zoning codes. Of course, Roman and Kurt and their podcast, all being based in the Bay Area, there are tons of local references throughout the book. Roman and Kurt, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. So you're obviously very experienced and accomplished podcasters and radio professionals, to put it mildly. Uh, Why write a book? What can you accomplish in text that you can't in a podcast, especially uh, when it comes to your area of expertise, design, and urbanism? Well, the first and easiest thing is that we can have illustrations and we can do this thing that's kind of like a field guide. I mean, it's not really a field guide. It's really a collection of stories and, and, and tells a big story about the city. But we wanted some of that look and feel of a field guide and some of the illustrations that, that we can't you know, achieve on the radio or in a podcast. But one of the bigger reasons, like I've been doing the show for 10 years, and there are so many stories kind of locked up in this linear format um so like even if you remember like oh there's a there was a show about curb cuts what was that detail about curb cuts who was that person and and you have to kind of like find the show list you know have 25 minutes to listen to it find the information and and then and then um and then you have it and there was just something about breaking open uh this information and making it you know perusable and 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 able to sort of go you know go through it in, in a different way that made sense at this point in the in the life of the show. We 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 talk about the idea of the metaphor of a desire path in the beginning of the of the book, and it kind of the book is like kind of like a desire path to the worldview and the type of stories we tell on ninety nine percent invisible. It allows you to kind of find your own way through the through the material. Yeah, and I, and coming from more of a of a writing and, and web publishing background, I mean, I've, I've written over ten thousand articles about. Uh, you know, buildings and cities and all these things. And I feel kind of the same way as Roman. It's like, at some point, you have all this material, you kind of know what the best stories are in the back of your mind, and you want to put them in one place and organize them and make them into something larger and not just be, you know, well, I could round up these articles and say, hey, check these out if you're interested in this. But instead, like, let's do more research and polish this and turn it into an object that is, you know, beautifully designed that offers you like this collection of all this material that we've been thinking about for years. Right. And what struck me is that this, this book's focus is on cities, um, Mm -hmm. which is obviously a big part of 99% invisible, the podcast, but it's not the extent of, of your uh, territory that you cover on the podcast. So what led you to really zoom in on cities um, when writing this book? Well, the beginning, you know, like the sort of impetus for starting, like Kurt and I were talking about the book concepts and, and the field guide idea was like the first one that sort of lit 
me up, you know, to think like, oh, okay, that would be fun. That would look fun. That would feel fun. It would be a, a fun object. And then from there, you have to go, well, well, you know, if it's a field guide and you can tell like stories about abstract things, but you still kind of have to have a, you know, a thing in front of you that has a jumping off point, you know? And so, um, and so the city just became like the good, you know, a good way to focus that attention. I mean, we definitely thought, I mean, like when I was, you know, shopping the book around, I was shopping around like an idea for like a three book series that was like a field guide, a field guide to the city, a field guide to roads and highways and, and, you know, and, and, and different things like that. And so I had this concept of it. And first of all, like all the publishers was, were like, uh, well, let's just do one book for now. You know, like, you know, like let's just see if one works, you know? And then, and I was like, oh, well, okay. You know, but I always think that, you know, like I make a series, you know, I made a series for 10 years. I think in terms of series, I'm like, well, but, but the city won't be complete, you know, until I do roads and highways and rural intersections, you know? And so, um, so that, I mean, that was kind of it. it was trying to pick one way to focus it. And then, and then, you know, we could go out from there, you know, and, and tell all kinds of stories. But but you're right. I mean, the 99% visible podcast, I mean, we'll do like the design of government, you know, like right. we, we do abstract design. But this was just a different kind of fun thing. And, and I and I kind of wanted it to be its its own thing. You know, like it doesn't have to speak for the whole show. It's 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 its own object. You know. And for me personally and professionally, I mean, I studied architecture in grad school, but but my big sort of passion and focus was urban design. And, and what I realized in studying architecture is like architecture, you know, is a sort of one-off thing within cities, but what really shapes architecture and how architecture really shapes cities is at a larger scale. And so architecture is neat, but like, if you want to understand our built environment, you have to understand like cities more broadly. Um, and so for me, like cities have been the focus I've ever started. I, I started a publication called Web Urbanist back in 2007 and cities were the kind of anchor for everything that I wrote about and are, you know, the places where most of us live. It's just like, it's so relevant to everyone. And this idea of a field guide to the city <laughs> is a way to, you know, it's not like a guidebook you take to, 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 you know, Berlin and look for things there. It's like, you will find things in your city. And maybe the story is about this, you know, traffic light crossing guy in Berlin, but, you'll still be able to relate to it in whatever city you're in. Right. Yeah. Oh, what, yeah. what does that mean, field guide? It's a, it's a fascinating term to me. Um, does it imply that your readers should take their book with them to the park um, as they're walking around the city? You know, if they see a, uh, a curb cut, look down and consult their book and uh, learn more <laughs> about, you know, what, what the story is there? Yeah, I, you know, probably a little bit yes, but mostly no, I guess is the thing. It's like it's it's made to be a reading book that you have, you know, that you can read straight through. It also has digestible like aspects to it so you can jump in at any point. Um and it's kind of but I, you know, like I think I liked the idea of playing with the tropes of a field guide, you know, like and have as many of those things as we wanted to make something beautiful and cool, but it wasn't um but it isn't a traditional like. Here's three sentences about a thing, and then all the variations and the different colors of the bird that you that you might see. And you know, it isn't laid out like that. It it's, it kind of uses like the fun, some of the fun aspects of field guide. But mainly, it's like it's just storytelling, like we well, always do. And there and there are some examples like like we talk about zero stones in the book, and we start out with an example from San Francisco, where the public works director is basically like 
we're going to figure out what the center of San Francisco is, and we're going to put a marker there. Now, you probably wouldn't just encounter that marker and consult the book. In fact, it would probably work the other way. You might read the book and then go look for that marker, right? And then um, we talk about how that dates back all the way to Roman times, and this idea of all roads lead to Rome is actually tied to this physical stone that was like the zero point for the Roman Empire and how cities throughout time have done this. So in that case, it's like you might see the thing first and consult the book, but you might also read about the zero stone in your city and go out and look for it and explore it because you've read about it in the book. So it can right. kind of work in both directions. Too. Interesting. Well, I mean, you know, I thought I, I suspected this would happen since, as I mentioned, you two are podcast pros, but you, you gave me a perfect transition, which is <laughs> I am wondering, uh, you know, what does it mean that both of you are, are uh, Bay Area residents, 99% Invisible is based in, in downtown Oakland. Um, and, and there are so many fascinating references uh, to, to things in San Francisco and in the Bay Area. Um, the history of Chinatown, I thought was was really um, engaging, the way it, it sort of was manufactured into a tourist attraction, uh, the way the Transamerica Pyramid uh, was really poorly received at first before it became an icon of San Francisco uh, that everyone loves generally. Um, and obviously so many more kind of obscure tales uh, like the, the Adolf Sutro anecdote trying to find the center of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how the Bay Area and San Francisco in particular inspire your work, um, both in the book and in the podcast and, and more broadly? Well, the show started as a, as a four-minute little story that was played during Morning Edition on KALW 91.7 in San Francisco. And so it was always meant to be based here. Um, and, and, and it was a, an idea that was hatched by the then executive director of the American Institute of Architects in San Francisco, Margie O'Driscoll, and the, and the general manager of KALW. And they just kind of pulled me in and said, like, what would you do with this type of stuff? And it just so happened that I was like an architecture fan and I wanted to expand the concept of design in general in, in, the, uh, in, in radio. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I can't help, you know, this is a, you know, this is a show and this is a book made by humans who live in a place and, and therefore like it is reflective of the place that we live, you know? And so when, when you do a show about the things you encounter every day, um, you tend to do stories about the things you encounter every day, which are, you know, right where you are, like mm-hmm. or location based. And it's, a, you know, and, and the Bay area is a really interesting place to think about urbanism because it's a, it's a, it's a place that, has um, all kinds of interesting challenges and ideas of itself and how it actually is. And it, it really, the, the, the populace and the city run against each other in really interesting ways here in the Bay. And so it's kind of kind of easy to talk about. There's like stories just right outside your door. You know? Yeah. And, and so to some extent being tapped into like local news and, and people who are local, you know, we end up talking about sharrows and that word actually came out of uh, San Francisco um, and uh, you know, shows for, for bicyclists. Um, and, and one thing the, the last entry we added to the book is this entry about uh, a group of private citizens who deployed a series of boulders on a sidewalk. Right. I remember this whole it, news story. It, yeah. Right. Like this was in, like in the news cycle and we mm-hmm. usually get things a little time to settle before, you know, we have a take on them. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of happening in real time, and it really fit this one section of the book 
and it and it had all these really weird twists and turns and interesting details and things to think about. And so we just kind of looked at each other towards the end and said, is it too late to put this in? Like, will the publisher like accept us like saying, hey, just one more story because we have a lot of stories in here. And, um, and so we added it and uh, Patrick, our, our illustrator, made this beautiful illustration of this weird process of like moving these boulders. People would roll them off into the street and then the city would put them back on the sidewalk. It was this weird back and forth. Um, but I think I was, you know, I think that story came across my radar because in part it was local. Hmm. Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a memorable story for me too. And um, kind of going the other direction, I, I knew the term for that whole fiasco, uh, hostile architecture from 99% invisible mm-hmm. and from you know, my reading in urbanism. So I think, uh, you know, it goes both ways. You learn from the landscape and also you, uh, as you take in, um, sort of the the writing and, and podcasting on this topic, you can kind of then see it in the environment, as you were saying. Um, and so you mentioned just now a, a sort of uh, challenging, negative in some ways, um, sad in many ways uh, episode out of San Francisco. Um, but there are a lot of other um, kind of more uplifting and uh, exciting things that you you catalog in San Francisco in the book. Um, San Francisco was famously the birthplace of parklets, which are now um, so ubiquitous in COVID times uh, as as the the place where uh, restaurants can basically uh, take take parking spaces and turn them into outdoor dining areas. Um, Before that, San Francisco had been turning parking spaces on a very limited basis into little parks. Um, There's a a bunch of them on like Valencia and Hayes Street. and then the curb cuts example is another super cool history in, that's based in the Bay Area. And in, in Berkeley, uh, they they came up with this idea of, after a lot of activist pressure of uh, little ramps in the sidewalk for wheelchair users to be able to safely cross the street. Um, and that has obviously become a nationwide, worldwide phenomenon since then. Um, so I, I'm so curious, you know, in this time of so much transition, disruption, pain, with, with COVID, with fires, unemployment, all this going on, how, how does Bay Area's kind of urbanism leadership um, or spirit of innovation uh, play into all that? What do you kind of see coming out of, of these difficult times in terms of how cities are going to change and, and how is the Bay Area going to lead that? Well, that's a big question. I mean, you know, it, it is a place where experiment has historically happened, although I do think that San Francisco in general is a pretty conservative city mm. um, in regards to its view of, of urbanism, mm. um, as evidenced by the, you know, the, the blanket of, you know, two to three story Victorians that, you know, like that people preserve at all costs um, against, you know, um, all, uh, you know, early against a lot of reason and logic that that there needs to be greater density in, in huge parts of the city for it to function. Um, what I what I hope is that, um, you know, right now I, it seems that uh, because of COVID, there has been a need for people to spread out a little bit more, and and you know, people don't have to work uh, right where they are; they they work at home. I think they're finding that they're the the world is spreading out a little bit, and maybe that you know lack of um, pressure on the rental market and the housing market will allow for some experimentation, so that when uh, 
things return to, to some kind of normal, that it can be a little bit more of an equitable city that, mm. can, that can go through this. And, and, and this is a place where experimentation could happen. You know, like there's smart people here, there are thoughtful people here. I know it's possible. And so what I would love to see is like when we have this moment, that there's a little bit of breathing room and, you know, maybe a place isn't, you know, bid on and, you know, and bought for twice its listed value and, um, and rents aren't necessarily so high that um, we could have a chance to, 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 to get things right uh, this time. And some of it, I think, you know, I, I hope to see more experimentation. We do have a legacy of that um, in the Bay Area. And one thing I've been doing just in terms of, so we put out the podcast, but I also write articles for our website. And a thing I've been keeping in mind and a kind of a type of story I've been looking for is like what kinds of innovations have come out of past disasters. And a few things that I've been writing about are things like this precursor to the modern bicycle that actually didn't have pedals. You like, you ran, you like sort of stood and ran with it. Um, (laughs) And and it's, yeah, it's super funny looking in hindsight, but it was this, it was like a response to like a volcano that covered the world in ash. Like it was like a horrible global disaster, but out of it came this thing that in turn became the bicycle. And yeah. another well, article. The, I the, the point is, is that the that the ash killed the horses, so people right. couldn't ride horses, and therefore yeah. they invented a bicycle. <laughs> right. So this this alternative form of of transit. It, I mean, and people were also slaughtering horses for their meat for me, because yeah. they were starving. I mean, the world was in turmoil, and at the time, I don't think anybody was like, "We're going to invent the bicycle to fix this." But in hindsight, it's really clear that that this thing came out of out of that period. Um, and so I think some of it will only be obvious in hindsight. And I'm kind of looking around at cities right now and, and not just like cities, you know, in general, but specific cities to see like, what are they doing that seems to be working and what of that might be useful to apply in other cities that are trying to figure out how to make things work. Yeah. Well, please. What have you been seeing? What have you been, um, observing and and what do you think will actually last in terms of these changes to cities that that have sprung up during the pandemic well i think like you mentioned the the uh, the parking day parklets the, the kind of like the experimentation of taking over a block and making it more public space i think that once that um you know that kind of refreshing uh you know relationship change relationship you have with the city and its streets um you if you have it in more places i think people will demand that a lot of that stays. Mm-hmm. I, I really do think so. So like, I know that in Chicago, they're closing down part of, part of Clark street to, uh, for restaurants. And, um, it's a kind of a delightful thing. And whenever you you're in a city and they have one of these promenades, um, everyone goes to it, you know, like, and you could probably make more of them and make them more for everybody. And I think people would, would, would dig into that. So I think this sort of idea that a, a road is just for a car and a car only going very quickly um, is, is beginning to get, you know, sort of like, uh, uh, is, is getting, people are experimenting a little bit and they, they, they don't feel like that's necessarily has to be the case. I, I think that'll stay. Yeah. And, and it's something, I mean, we have a whole section in the book that sort of traces the, the arc of like roads becoming things for cars. <laughs> and, but in reading that, it, it also, you know, if you reverse engineer that, you can envision a world in which they're not for cars because you can, you can look back and see that they weren't always for cars. So, I mean, part of what the book does 
just by going into history is like gives you examples that you can look at uh, and potentially apply going forward too. Well, if you had to, uh, you had to decide what would be the ultimate urban interventions that you would like to see, say, in the Bay Area? Oh, just for one thing. Housing. We, housing. <laughs> you beat me to the punch. Um, <laughs> it just, we need more housing. There's, okay, so just to geek out for a second, there somebody came out with a board game a while back called Bay Area Regional Planner. And the goal of the game is to, like, build more housing and there's all these funky rule cards, like, you can't build in Marin. Um, like, and like, like, there's all these, like, little rules and regulations. And you, so you're trying to work within those to, like, build out housing in the Bay, um, all the way down to, like, you know, San Jose. I mean, just, just the whole Bay Area. And I really think that that is, like, the biggest challenge, is mm-hmm. where are we going to put housing? How are we going to, to rezone to accommodate more housing? Because we are not building enough, fast enough. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the great thing about San Francisco has been, you know, like there is, or the Bay area in general, there is great experimentation with, with urbanism and thinking of new things. There was also great experimentation with zoning <laughs> and like Berkeley had the first zoning laws. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, like on the East Bay has such terrible density is because they were early experimenters with, you know, racist housing covenants and, and zoning just to sort of keep, um, white people in houses with yards and, you know, and it's, uh, and it's the legacy of that is just, we've been just, just suffering under those choices for a really long time. And, and that needs to stop. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting how that kind of spirit of innovation cuts both ways. Um, I think, you know, you see that with some contemporary issues too, where the Bay area is very quick to adopt certain things like say Uber and Lyft. And then there are some negative side effects of it as well. Um, so it just seems like looking back in history, as you've done in, in your book and in your podcast, you see over and over again how there are these um, unintended side effects and uh, that can be both good and bad. And, uh, you know, it's very hard in the moment, like right now, when so much is changing to know exactly what's going to stick with us. Um, yeah. And, and one of the things that I, I mean, there, I see so much controversy around e-scooters hmm. and on the one hand, I'm like, great, another mode of transit that that is accessible to like a certain demographic of people that are like between walkers and cyclists, and it has all these unintended side effects. Like, you know, them not all scooter riders are following the, the rules of the road or, or being safe. Uh, a lot of them are parking their e-scooters on the sidewalks. Um, so maybe we maybe we need some some solutions to that. And and but. St- but a lot of people come down on like the hard no side of just saying, well, e-scooters are just annoying. Let's get rid of them. And I, I try to look at it more broadly and say, well, is there a place for these in cities? And, you know, is it, is it at least good to see what they're doing and then be able to evaluate it rather than just kind of taking one look at saying, well, that's just annoying. Hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, is there, is there a, some nuance that we can pull from this and maybe learn from yeah, I need I need to like I need to take a chill pill about the because <laughs> I generally like I love solving the last mile problem, but like in the beginning I was just like let's just chuck all these and like merit like I'm so I'm so I'm so sick of them lying around and like making it inaccessible the sidewalks inaccessible I was just like so mad but I totally agree like I need to like solving 
that type of middle problem of just something that's a little too far of a walk, but um, shouldn't have a car is like, that's a good problem to solve. I, I totally agree with that. <laughs> yeah. And, and it might take more than just throwing a bunch of e-scooters out on the streets, right? Yeah, like that might just be the first stab at it, but, but it's, yeah. <laughs> I, th I think a really interesting design problem and solution that we saw with e-scooters in San Francisco in particular is that at first, as you said, there was all this clutter and scooters were being strewn in the middle of the sidewalk, but then they made this new regulation that the scooters have to have lock two bike lock type mechanisms. Um, and so that means uh, since that happened, at least in my experience, and I think this is something that even anti-scooter people have been saying, uh, there've been a lot less uh, scooter clutter. So I feel like yeah. that's, that's one of those examples of a little 99% invisible intervention that can kind of actually make a real difference um, over totally. a very short period of time. Totally. I, I saw these guys, um, this was months ago, but there, there's this group that uh, they were spray painting like parking spots for these mm -hmm. onto like big, like wider sections of sidewalk where they could like sit off to the side. And I was like, look, it's a spray paint. It's a stencil. And boom, you've got parking spots for these things. And I was like, that that's the kind of reaction I want to see. Not, not just kind of like, oh, well, we need to just get rid of all these. But it's like, Okay, can we can we rein them in first and see if that works <laughs> before before we throw? Maybe we have to throw them in like Merritt in the end. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I like I like seeing the kind of dialogue there of like people trying to trying different responses and and yeah, things like you know maybe they need to be locked in in spot in a spot and that will uh, help address some of the annoyance that they create in the city. Yeah, mostly you just have to nudge people in the right direction of doing the right thing. And it's not that hard. I mean, these spray painted like little bird cages, they call them, um, as, you know, places to park your bird scooter is like, they totally, you know, they worked, you know, I don't know if they worked incredibly well, but they worked a little bit and that's, you know, that's enough. And so I, I like that type of ingenuity and design, but we tend to not, you know, go into the show. I mean, the reason why the show tends to talk about things, you know, a hundred years in the past is we like to have this, you know, a little bit of time to, <laughs> to assess how it's going. And so it's, it's kind of hard to weigh in on, on things as they're, as they're going, but it's been, totally. it's been fun to do it with the, with the book. You know. Well, speaking of current events, I think it's been interesting how on um, the way you've talked about your book on recent episodes and in, in your intro teaser, uh, you ask your listeners, you know, let's get together, pre-order this book and knock a Trump uh, biography or memoir <laughs> or jeremiah off the new york times bestseller list yeah. um and you you ask your listeners let's do it for america um and i know it's kind of tongue-in-cheek but uh you know what's the kind of deeper meaning there what's the what is the social and political value of a of a book like yours that that really isn't connected to uh at least directly to politics and the news cycle and um you know these these intense social uh, change questions that are that are being asked right now. Um, mm. what, what can we get on those levels from your book, even if it doesn't directly touch on a lot of those issues? Yeah, well, I think that in general, that a kind of mindfulness of the built world and thinking about the thought that went into the, the built world and where you are um, automatically makes you, you know, like a better person, you know, like, and and therefore has the potential to, you know, uh, to, to sort of result in political change or just kind of action or just more empathy in the world. I mean, if you notice all um, the effort that goes into designing things, 
um, you feel a little more taken care of by the people who design things for us. And that is a good feeling. And it gives you a good basis to, to exist in the world. You notice the stories everywhere. You can be kind of delighted by them. Um, but knowing these histories allows you to affect change because you do realize that, hey, you know, roads don't have to be this way if we don't want them to be because they, and they weren't always this way. And it gives you like a little bit of grounding to be armed to, you know, it, it, to enact some kind of change. And so I think that the way that we kind of use curiosity to seduce people, to think about the world deeply, um, has the potential to make the world, uh, you know, better in some way. And, and so, uh, you know, like that's a highfalutin, you know, big goal, you know, but it, but I do think it actually, it, it's kind of worked on me is, is the way I sort of treat it. Like I'm not a kind of a naturally, you know, natural optimistic person. I kind of have a dim worldview a lot of the time, but like, as I, as I've been working on this project for 10 years, I just become a little bit more optimistic as I think about the choices that people made on my behalf. And, and I think other people might be infected with that spirit as well. Yeah. And I, and I think too, it's, you know, one of the things that I, I hope this book raises awareness of is like who is served by different designs, right? Um, design isn't like necessarily good or bad in itself. It's, it's goodness or badness is a function of, you know, who it impacts and how. And we're not trying to tell you uh, how to how what side to come down on for any particular design, but by by showing you the kind of range of reactions you could have and how it's impacting different people, you know, you can look at like hostile spikes or an uncomfortable bench and say, well, that's a good thing or a bad thing, but either way, you're aware of it and it starts to to percolate into the way you think about your built world and how you want to interact with it and what you want to lobby for or do to change. it. Mm. Well, I think that's a really good place to leave it off. Uh, thank you so much, Kurt and Roman for being with us today. And uh, I had a great time hearing about the book and, and your wider thoughts on urbanism and how it relates to how we all live in the world. Um, I think these are some really uh, provocative questions for everyone to be thinking about. So thank you for bringing them up for all of us. Thank you, Ben. It was really a pleasure to be on the, on the show with you. Likewise. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. Our episode was produced, engineered, and recorded by me, Nick Veronin. Our theme music was composed by The Armature. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, subscribe to our podcast through Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash sfweeklypodcast, and check out our website, sfweekly.com. See you next week.